My guess is that if you have been around the life of the church, whether that be here or, or somewhere else, if you've been around the, the life of the church very long at all, you may have noticed from time to time that there are people who profess to be followers of Jesus, seem to be followers of Jesus, and then something happens and they are no longer followers of Jesus. They walk with him no more. Now why is this? Well, there are various reasons for which this happens, and we find one of them this morning in our text in John chapter 6, verses 59 through 71. And so if you would turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 6, we'll read beginning in verse 59 through the end of the chapter. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Then Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now, as we look at these verses this morning, we'll consider them under two main headings. First, the stumbling of professed disciples. And then secondly, the perseverance of true disciples. And so we have the stumbling of professed disciples and then the perseverance of true disciples. Now, Jesus, as we have seen, has been teaching in John 6 concerning his identity as the bread of life, as the bread of God who came down from heaven and gives life to the world. He had been teaching the necessity of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. That's what he says here in John 6. And he explained this in chapter 6, verse 35, as coming to him by faith and trusting in him. Trusting, in other words, that his flesh was to be given for the life of the world, that his blood was to be shed for the spiritual life of the world. And as verse 59 indicates, this teaching had taken place while Jesus was at the synagogue in Capernaum. But it is 
been clear as we've been working through the chapter up to this point that the teaching of our Lord did not go over well with all those who were listening to him. We read up in verse 41 that the Jews were grumbling about him, and then in verse uh, 52 they began to argue with one another about what he was saying, and now we find in verse 60 that even some of his disciples, that is to say those who were following him, who were learning from him and listening to him, they were having problems with what Jesus was saying. And so they complain about what he was saying. They say, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? In other words, they found the teaching of Jesus to be harsh and offensive. Now let's put ourselves in their shoes. Jesus had spoken about eating flesh and drinking blood. Now, just an initial reaction, we would think, that sounds weird, that sounds bad. And they're having trouble making sense of this. And to them, at least, it seems so weird and so bad that they don't want to try to make sense of it anymore. Their sensibilities were offended, and so they aren't much in the mood of wanting to listen to Jesus' teaching anymore. They're getting ready to be done. Thank you very much. Jesus obviously knew about this. He could see into the hearts of all. He had divine insight. And so he says to them in verses 61 and 62, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The words which Jesus had spoken were a stumbling block to them. But, as Jesus makes clear, this is by far not the only difficulty that Jesus can pose to these people. And so he throws out another aspect of his life and ministry, which also was apt to make them stumble. What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before. It wasn't just the discussion of eating flesh and drinking blood that was difficult for this crowd. Remember that up in verse 42, they also had a hard time with him saying that he had come down from heaven. They thought they knew Jesus' origins. We know his family, we know know Mary, we know Joseph, we know his brothers. Who does this guy think he is to say he came down from heaven? Jesus says here, what will you do if you see the Son of Man ascend back into heaven. If they stumbled as to when he had told them that he had come down from heaven as as the bread of God to give life that was supposed to, to feed them, would they not find it even more incredible if the human Jesus Christ, the divine human Jesus Christ, should ascend back into heaven? Would they not stumble if they knew that Jesus required them to eat his flesh and drink his blood even after he had ascended from heaven and departed physically from them? Would this not have caused them to stumble as well? But in verse 63, Jesus comments about his own words. He says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Now, this verse 63 is notoriously Difficult to interpret, and one commentator reckoned it perhaps as the most difficult text in the entire Gospel of John, as far as interpretation is concerned. But be that as it may, I would suggest that what Christ is saying here is, first of all, that the Holy Spirit is the one who gives life. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives spiritual life to men and women. Flesh, in and of itself, is of no value, spiritually speaking. This is true of human flesh in regard to bringing spiritual life. Our human flesh does not bring us spiritual life. It's the Holy Spirit who brings spiritual life. Nor would a physical eating of 
Christ's flesh give the kind of life that Jesus had been speaking of here in this passage. In other words, both our human flesh and or a fleshly interpretation of Christ's words. Both of these would profit us nothing, spiritually speaking. Only the Spirit of God brings the kind of life that Jesus had been describing here. Jesus has been talking about eternal life. Only the Holy Spirit gives that life by which one will live forever. And then in the second half of verse 63, Jesus characterizes the words that he had been speaking. He says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. I think that D.A. Carson's take on the second half of verse 63 is helpful when he interprets this statement from Jesus as meaning that those words that that Jesus had been speaking all along are the product of the life-giving spirit, and those words, when rightly understood and absorbed, will generate life. The words that Jesus had spoken were words generated by the Spirit, and if those words were rightly understood and rightly absorbed by the hearers, it would bring life. These words that Jesus had spoken, in other words, should not be the cause of falling away. These words are spirit. These words are life. These words bring life, but only when they are received in true faith. When they are not combined with true faith, Jesus' words do not provide any benefit. And so he immediately says to them then in verse 64, he says, But there are some of you who do not believe. In other words, the words of Jesus do not bring life to them. It doesn't bring life to those who don't believe. And notice what else he was saying is recorded at the end of verse 65. For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. And of course he was referring to what he had said back up in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And so Jesus sees this groundswell movement on the part of his professing disciples, these these people who had been walking with him, listening to him, following after him, and he knows that some of them do not and will not believe. He knows that within the inner circle of the twelve apostles, there's one who will ultimately betray him. The words that Jesus had spoken were spirit and life. They would give life to those whom the Father drew, those whom the Father drew to Christ, would be given new life by the Holy Spirit by means of the words that Jesus had spoken. But for those who disbelieved, to borrow another biblical phrase, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. They tripped on the rock of offense. First Peter 2.8. And that's what was happening here. People were stumbling over Christ. They were stumbling over His words. And this is why Jesus reiterates again the sovereignty and the grace of God, that no one can come to Him unless that is something that is granted to him from God the Father. And then verse 66 states very clearly what we could all see was coming. These disciples had been offended, they were grumbling, and now they're done. They are no longer going to follow after him. They're going to walk with Jesus no more. Now obviously this is something that we never want to see. This is bad. We don't want to see those who have walked with Jesus, at least outwardly, Stop walking with him. We don't want to see people who had professed faith in Jesus stop following him, stop professing faith in him. Now we understand that there's a, there's a purifying action that takes place when false brothers are, are found to be false and when they cease to 
infiltrate the body of Christ's followers. But originally we had had hopes that these people were not false brothers. We had hoped that they were genuine disciples, genuine believers joining with us in serving and following Christ. We had hoped that they would serve Jesus with us forever, both in this world and in eternity. So this is something that we never want to see. But we should take a lesson here from John chapter 6 that we must not be surprised nor must we be shaken when this kind of thing happens. Now it should be obvious to anyone who pays attention that this stumbling over Christ and stumbling over his claims and his words is something that has never gone away. This is something that, that still happens for some reason or other, sometimes some of those who had been following Jesus, at least outwardly following him, fall away from him. They find, as here, some part of Christ's claims or some part of the teaching of the Bible more broadly that are hard for them. And they decide that they can't stomach it any longer. They say in so many words, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? They stumble over some part of God's revelation and they withdraw and they do not walk with Jesus anymore. Now this gives evidence that they do not really believe in Christ, that they do not belong to Christ, that they have not truly come to him because they have not been taught and drawn by the Father. And now while we're considering this point, we do need to look ahead to the words of the final two verses of the chapter where Jesus says, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now in these words we find that even among the twelve there was one who did not truly believe. Even among the twelve there was one who had not truly been drawn to Christ by the Father and given to him by the Father. And that Judas here even continued outwardly following Christ at this point, right? Judas did not get up and walk away with this other multitude of disciples who stopped following Jesus. Judas still continued on with Jesus, walking with him externally, even though he was a devil, even though he was not saved. He would be ultimately the one into whom Satan entered, as we find in Luke 22.3. He was the one who sold our Lord out for money and led those who arrested Jesus to the place where he was that night in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, Jesus said here that Judas is a devil. He said, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He knew that Judas would go on to betray him, as it was prophesied in the Psalms, Psalm 41, 9. Even my close friend, whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. That's why we sang Psalm 41 this morning, because it's ultimately a prophecy of Judas betraying Jesus. And... Jesus spoke of Judas later on in the Gospel of John in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 12. And he said that not one of them has perished, talking about the disciples, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Now that expression, son of perdition, is a Hebrew expression that denotes someone who is ruined or someone who is devoted to destruction. The example of, of Judas demonstrates for us both God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Because here we have a man who was doing what God had foreordained was to happen. And Jesus himself at one point said, the Son of Man is to go just as it has been written of him. 
Jesus would be betrayed. Jesus would be taken away by someone who was his close associate. But nevertheless, it's absolutely essential for us to understand that even though Judas was the son of perdition, he was still exercising his own will. He was still doing what he wanted to do. No one was twisting his arm into betraying Jesus against his will. No, no, no. He did what he wanted to do, and therefore Judas would be judged as guilty because of it. And it's worth noticing here in the text in John 6 that there is no fundamental change in the character of Judas from what he was at this point to what he would be later on when he betrayed Jesus. Jesus did not say here that Judas would be a devil. He didn't say, have I not chose you the twelve yet? One of you will be a devil. He said, one of you is a devil. Presently speaking, he was a devil at this point. He was a devil when he betrayed Jesus. Internally, he was all the same. His heart was the same all throughout. And the only difference between Judas at this point and Judas at the point of betrayal was simply his external position, the position of his feet, as it were. At this time, he was walking with Jesus, externally speaking. At the time of the betrayal, he was walking away from Jesus. But his heart was in the same position all throughout. He was a devil here. John tells us in John chapter 12, verse 6, that Judas was a thief and that as he had charge of the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. This was standard operating procedure for Judas. Is it any wonder then that a man like that would sell Jesus out for money when he thought he could make some easy money by his treachery? Internally, he was the same all the way through. There are different ways and means of abandoning Jesus, but the end of them all terminate at the same point. The end of all of them is destruction. And in every case, the one who departs has never truly belonged, has never truly been changed internally by the grace of God. Is this not the same phenomenon that John would later describe in 1 John 2.19 when he said, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. Their going out shows that they had never really been changed. This happened during the earthly ministry of Jesus. This happened in the churches in the days of the apostles as John was interacting with that situation in the book of 1 John. This happened uh, later on all throughout the history of the church. So, for instance, it happened during the time of the Reformation, especially in Eastern Europe. There were large swaths of professing uh, believers who were led into the heresy of rejecting the deity of Christ. This happened during the days of the Enlightenment, when people decided that they couldn't trust and believe the actual occurrence of supernatural events described in Scripture. This happens today, for example, when certain people embrace certain categories of thought, supposing that certain things are right and certain things are wrong, and then they come to form those value judgments, not on the basis of the Bible, but on the basis of the world's terminology and the world's ideologies and values. And then when it becomes clear that those worldly values that they have adopted are at odds with the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles and prophets in Scripture, then they come out... And say, more or less, this is a harsh saying. Who can listen to it? Not us. We're out of here. Or perhaps sometimes people reach that conclusion and they'll want to be a little more subtle than that. They don't want to to outright abandon Jesus. At least they don't 
want to come right out and say they're abandoning Jesus. They want to fool themselves or perhaps fool others into thinking that they're not really abandoning Jesus. And so they'll just reject certain sections or certain swaths of the word of God, all the while claiming to be faithful Christians. This was the historic and present trajectory of Protestant liberalism. Basically, their attitude was, we don't want to be so bold as to say that we're walking away from Jesus, but we do need to delete, or at least safely ignore, all of those doctrines or moral precepts that are offensive to us, that are out of step with the spirit of the age. That was the attitude. And so in our day, for instance, this kind of thing can happen when someone adopts the world's deviant views in regard to the sexuality or views in regard to distinct roles of men and women or, or other things. And so, for instance, uh, just to consider one example, sometimes the world or some parts of the world will say that they want to uh, burn down the patriarchy. They would say the patriarchy is oppressive. We want to get rid of oppression. Let's burn it all down. Or maybe they'd say they want to get rid of toxic masculinity. And that sounds really bad, right? If it's toxic, we don't want it. And if something is oppressive, we as Christians should not have anything to do with it. But let's dig a little deeper. Is this good or is this bad? And I suppose that in these cases that I've thrown out, like so many other things, it all depends on what one means by the words that they use. In reference to oppressive patriarchy and toxic masculinity, are they saying that husbands should not beat their wives and should not treat their wives and children like chattel? If that's what they're saying, then by all means, let's burn it down. Sign me up. I'll strike the match. Show me where to stand. I'll pour on the diesel fuel. Let's burn it to the ground. If that's what is meant by the patriarchy or if that's what is meant by toxic masculinity, then let's get rid of it. If by toxic masculinity they mean that men must never sexually abuse nor sexually harass others, let's burn it down, right? This kind of behavior has no place among Christians. And so St. Paul says, immorality or impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. If these are the kind of practices that people are gunning for, then by all means, let's get rid of it. My sense, though, is that that's not exactly what they mean, or at least not all that they mean by the words that they use. Probably intended in burning down the said patriarchy would be the rejection of any notion that husband actually is the authority in his household and that wives are commanded in Ephesians 5.24 to submit to their husbands in everything. Probably burning down the patriarchy would mean a rejection of Paul's instructions about church order. As he said in 1 Timothy 2.12, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Probably burning down the patriarchy would be the necessary affirmation of abortion rights for women. As to be coercive for a woman to be told what to do with her body, and so if we have to burn oppressive patriarchy to the ground, that means that a woman does not have the right, or excuse me, that she does have the right to choose whether she wants to kill the baby in her womb or not. Probably burning down the patriarchy would include the rejection of biblical standards of sexual morality. These standards were written down by men and enforced by men, and we can't have that anymore. Part of burning down the patriarchy would probably mean to recognize that Jesus himself is part of the problem. Just remember the way he spoke to that Syrophoenician woman in Matthew 15, 
when he said that it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And he's implying that this woman was a Gentile dog. We might read that sometimes and not recognize that Jesus is trying to, trying to encourage this woman to reach out to him in faith as she did. And he said, oh woman, great is your faith. And he healed her daughter. But if we just read Matthew 15 or Mark 7 on a surface level, we might say, this is ridiculous. This is wicked. This shows us how even a good man like Jesus can be twisted by the presuppositions of his culture. So if we're going to burn down the patriarchy, we have to recognize that Jesus himself is part of the problem. You see how this works. What begins, and at least on the surface level, is a desire to be rid of oppression and paints itself as something that will get rid of oppression and wickedness, goes on then to define certain aspects of God's design, certain aspects of God's commandments as oppressive and wicked. And therefore, the word of God becomes a stumbling block because the world's values are over here. The scripture says something that is diametrically opposed. And for those who have jumped on the bandwagon of the world and embrace the world's ideologies in these regards, and then they hear the word of God, and they say, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? You mean husbands are the heads of their households and wives are really to submit to their husband? You mean that the Bible really does prohibit women from being pastors? You mean that you're really not allowed to be sexual free agents in this world? These are hard sayings. And because of this, people will sometimes do exactly what these disciples did here in verse 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. This, as we've said, is unfortunate. But it happens. It happened to Jesus. It happened in the days of the apostles. It has happened all throughout church history. It happens today. Indeed, as various trends tend to, to ebb and flow, this tendency seems to be on the rise in the present time. This tendency of professing disciples of Jesus to become offended at some part of the word of God and therefore to bid farewell to Jesus, or at least to bid farewell to some part of his word, which thereby sets themselves up by means of a corrosive hermeneutic to reject more and more of the word of God as they see fit. Now this is tragic, and it always has been. But notice, notice Jesus' response in all of this. He doesn't pander to those who are offended. He doesn't beg them for their allegiance or plead with them to continue following with them. He doesn't apologize. He doesn't say, oh wow, that... That offended you? That part about eating my flesh and drinking my blood? I'm sorry, guys. You've got to understand. He didn't, he didn't do any of that. He didn't pander. He didn't soft-pedal himself to make himself more acceptable to those who took offense at him. Rather, he, he actually pointed to something else over which they could stumble at him. He said, what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? Jesus said in Mark 8.38, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man, will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus is who he is. He's the Son of God incarnate. He says what he says and his word is truth. And if you have a problem with that, the problem is not his. The problem is actually yours. And it's noteworthy that Jesus reiterates here again in verse 65 the truth that he had stated up in verse 44, that no one could come to him unless 
It had been granted to him by the Father. Jesus sees their unbelief, and he knows the root of their unbelief, namely that they are dead in sin. And he acknowledges the impossibility of sinners to come to him unless they are the recipients of the Father's grace, grace drawing them to Christ. This is what explains the unbelief of these disciples here who turn away, the fact that it had not been granted them by the Father to come to Christ. They were responsible to come, they were commanded to come, and they should have come. But hardened in their sin, they chose to abandon Christ. Now, the conduct of these temporary disciples should be a warning to us. We should be warned here against taking offense at Jesus. We should be warned here about seizing upon something that we don't understand, or seizing upon something that is uncomfortable to us, and then turning that into a reason for which we just walk away from Jesus. Many people have done that. Ultimately, the end is destruction. So don't do that. So then what should we do? Well, we find in the, uh, these final verses of the chapter, beginning there in verse 67, a wonderful and hopeful contrast to the conduct of these temporary disciples. And in it we see the perseverance of true disciples, which is our second point this morning. The second, the, uh, second point is the perseverance of true disciples. And so Jesus sees many of these temporary disciples turn away, and he goes to the twelve whom he had especially chosen to follow him and to preach, He says, you do not want to go away also, do you? And Peter, being forthright as usual, speaking for the twelve, says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now Peter's words here encapsulate for us the attitude and the perseverance of a true disciple. Now Peter and the others often did not understand Jesus. Jesus sometimes spoke literally while they took him figuratively. Sometimes Jesus spoke figuratively and they took him literally. Jesus taught in parables and then behind closed doors they would ask him what the parables meant. And they often had bad and foolish ideas about how they were going to follow Jesus and how they were going to serve him. Just think of Peter up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He says, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. There's no need for that. But nevertheless, he was wanting to follow Jesus, wanting to serve Jesus. Think of James and John when the village of the Samaritans didn't receive Jesus. They said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire out of heaven? Jesus said, no, no, the Son of Man didn't come to destroy men's lives. He came to save them. Think of Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? They come to take Jesus. Peter whips out the sword, cuts off the guy's ear. Jesus said, put your sword back in its place. Right? These, they meant well, but they didn't always know how to follow Jesus. And so here in this particular case in John 6, my guess is if these temporary disciples were confused here about what Jesus meant, Peter and the rest of the twelve were probably somewhat confused as well. But yet... Notice what they do. Even when they see others abandoning Jesus, the true disciples don't. Both the true disciples and the temporary disciples are probably confused. But what made the difference here? What made the difference between the two groups? Peter's words and attitude, uh, the attitude which are conveyed in his words, indicate that he knows who Jesus is. That he understands that Jesus offers something else that no one else does. And that there's no one 
and nothing else in all of the world that can compare with Jesus. Peter is hanging on to Jesus because he's got nowhere else to go. He has no one else to whom he can turn. He doesn't claim to understand everything that Jesus has said, but he does know that to walk away from Jesus would be suicidal. This is the attitude of the true disciple of Jesus when the going gets tough. This is the attitude of the true follower of Jesus even when he can't make sense of something that Jesus has said or something that the Word of God more broadly has said. This is the attitude of the true disciple when lots of people are walking away from Jesus. And in one sense, you can maybe kind of understand the reason why they're walking away from Jesus. The attitude of the true disciple says three things with Peter. It says, I've got nowhere else to go. You have the words of eternal life. You are the Holy One of God. The true disciple is the one who recognizes that if he doesn't have Jesus, he has lost everything. That if he doesn't have Jesus, then literally all is vanity. Those haunting words of Ecclesiastes. If he doesn't have Jesus, then he's without hope and without God in the world. If he doesn't have Jesus, he might as well say, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The true disciple doesn't always have everything figured out, and he can't always put all of the pieces together. They don't always have the best answers for everything. But the true disciple recognizes that Jesus Christ offers what no one else does. That he alone offers the forgiveness of sins. He alone offers reconciliation with God. And therefore, Jesus alone truly offers eternal life. Because the penalty of eternal death is done away with in the sacrifice of Christ once for all on the cross. And Jesus can do this. And he can only do this because he is the Holy One of God. The Son of God who was sent into the world for the salvation of sinners. Now when Peter spoke these words saying that we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. He believed them to be true. They were true and they are true. He did believe that Jesus was the Holy One of God. But even then, he probably didn't understand everything that was contained in that true confession of his faith. And so it is with true disciples. We believe and confess things that are true, and yet at the same time, things that we do not yet fully understand. What did you expect when you have finite creatures who are interacting with the infinite God? There will inevitably be some gaps in our comprehension and in our ability to explain and communicate about infinite truths. But all of that notwithstanding, the true disciple knows that in having Jesus Christ, he has something that nothing else in the world and no one else in the world can offer. And as a result of this, the true disciple is resolved. Come what may, he is going to stick it out with Jesus. So he holds on to Jesus when others are walking away. He holds on to Jesus when he is mocked and ridiculed for doing so. He holds on to Jesus when he is persecuted for righteousness' sake. He holds on to Jesus when he sees himself as a sinner and feels ashamed. He holds on to Jesus despite the uncertainties and the doubts that sometimes plague his heart and soul because he knows that he's got nowhere else to go. It's either Jesus or a meaningless existence. He knows that if he were to abandon Christ, there'd be nowhere to go. There would be nothing to comfort in distress. Nothing to cheer in times of sorrow. Nothing solid to stand on when the foundations are shaken. Nowhere to go for forgiveness of sins when the guilt hits home. No true hope of eternal life when it becomes clear that life is fleeting. And there would be no true purpose 
for living even this earthly life because it all becomes vanity outside of Christ. Now again, I love the words of our Confession of Faith in this article on perseverance where it says, We believe that only such are real believers as endure to the end and that their persevering attachment to Christ is the grand mark which distinguishes them from superficial professors. That a special providence watches over their welfare and they are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. For real believers, it's their persevering attachment to Christ that is the grand mark that distinguishes them. They keep holding on to Christ, come what may. And this is not because the true believer is so strong or so good. Because if you know yourself, you know that you neither are strong nor good. Rather, as our confession said, it's because a special providence watches over our welfare. It's because we are being kept by the power of God through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time, as we find in 1 Peter chapter 1. It's because, as Jesus had said earlier in this discourse, up in verse 39, This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. This is God's will, that all of those who are drawn by the Father to Christ and given by the Father to Christ, all who come to Him in true faith and repentance, will be held safe by Christ, preserved in true faith until the end. And so we read in 1 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9, that God will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And again, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Or as Jesus himself would put it in John 10, 28 and 29. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. The true disciples are those who hang on to Christ and continue hanging on to Christ only because Christ has taken hold of them and will not let them go. And so how do we, how do, we do that? How do we continue hanging on to Christ? This is where a passage like 2 Corinthians 13.5 can be helpful. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? Some self-examination can be helpful from time to time. Now, certainly, self-examination can be carried to an unhealthy extreme, but some self-examination as to our sincerity in regard to repentance and faith is, is a helpful thing. There is a time and a place to examine ourselves, to see if we are in the faith. Likewise, a passage like Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, is a helpful reminder to pay attention and continue paying attention to the truth of God. The writer of the Hebrews says, For this reason we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? His point is, we won't escape if we neglect it. Therefore, what do we do? We must pay closer attention to this message, so that we don't drift away from it. Because the tendency, the natural tendency, is for us to drift. We have to pay close attention to what we've heard. And keep pressing into Jesus. Keep looking to Him. And keep trusting Him. Let's pray. 
Our Father, we come to you this morning, and we know that if there was anything about salvation that was dependent on us in ourselves, we would not be saved. We would never come to Christ in the first place unless it was was you who, who drew us by teaching us. We would never stay with Christ were it not Christ holding on to us and you watching over our welfare providentially. Father, we praise you for this great and gracious plan of salvation that you have given to us, by which you sent Christ to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins, by which you work by teaching us the truths of Christ and drawing us by cords of love unto Christ, by changing our wills so that we desire Christ. Father, we give praise for this great plan of salvation. And Father, as we come this morning to Christ's table, we ask that you would strengthen our hearts as we remember the great reality that we do by faith, by trusting in Christ, feed upon his flesh and blood. That By trusting him, we are sustained by him who is the bread of life. Father, we praise you for your greatness and for your kindness to us. We ask your help, Lord, that you would hold us fast, that you would keep us from walking away with the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.